Um, this morning as we're meeting here, uh, team is in Maine and they're leading worship and preaching uh, up there. So I'd uh, be in prayer for those who are there. Um, we're, we're at the seventh Beatitude. If you, this is the first time you've ever been here, I've been preaching through the Beatitudes. I count them as nine. A lot of people count them as eight because eight and nine have one word in common, but they are to me very different. And uh, I'm also combining them with the ninefold fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. So we're in Matthew 5 and verse 9 today. And then we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And today's the last one that's listed in verse 22. So uh, I pray you uh, have a copy of the Word of God. You've turned there. And uh, today it says, blessed are the peacemakers. Notice this in verse uh, uh, 9 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And, uh, and then over in Galatians 5, the corresponding part of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 is faithfulness. Faithfulness. So we're going to look at the, these concepts a little bit, what God is trying to get us uh, to see. Uh, we just sang a song that I think fits into the whole series and that is, if more of you means less of me, take everything. And uh, we, uh, and I say we, I include myself when I say we. We think uh, sometimes of revival as something that is happening to lost people or something that's happening outside of us. Uh, but revival is what that song was talking about, that we, are, we empty ourselves and we, God's people are more obedient to him than ever before. Uh, it may not be possible for us to empty ourselves totally. That's the work of God to help us to do it. But until we are willing to, to willingly give up everything in our life for him, uh, there's always going to be some kind of hindrance there. And so a revival comes when God's people say we want to obey and they want to live right with the Lord. And when we do that, we start hearing reports uh, of people being saved and those things because God's people are acting obediently. Are you with me? People being saved is not revival. It's the results of revival. And, and we have to re realize this. And so what we've been looking at in the Beatitudes, these first uh, six that we've covered, are leading us to look and act uh, as kingdom people, as people who belong in the kingdom of God. Because that's what the Beatitudes are about. This is what kingdom people are supposed to look like. And the very first one in verse uh, 3 was poor in spirit, which means to be totally devastated, uh, having nothing, ha and totally paralyzed doing anything about it, having no means of gaining anything. And it says, when that happens to you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because if we don't empty ourselves, and we don't realize our desperate need for God, God's not an add-on. God never comes next. Did you know that? God just never comes next. He is or he is not in your life, period. And so when we when we realize he's there and we open new places in our life, we surrender uh, to his will and his control, uh, we are realizing that we're poor in spirit and we depend on him totally anyway. And as a result of being poor in spirit, we begin to mourn. And that's in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We, we mourn because we realize how desperately in need we are. And then as we are mourning and we are comforted, we become meek. We we know we have nothing. We mourn that condition. And God begins to speak to us and teach us what is his will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Can't get away from those two verses. That once we have presented our body a living sacrifice. What's the nature of a sacrifice? 
it gets burned up on an altar, right? Well, we're to be a living sacrifice. One, uh, one great leader in the Christian faith said, if you're going to present your body as a living sacrifice, prepare for the altar to get a little warm. Because we become a sacrifice for God and we sing it in our hymn book that his fire burns away our dross and burns away our sin. And so we, we, when that happens, now we're, we'll listen. It says when we do that, we are able to prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so we begin to know his will because we are meek, we are teachable. And then as we are teaching or learning, as he's teaching us, we begin to hunger and thirst for more. It is not just a need for the moment it is a longing desire that does not uh it continues even though we are satisfied as we go then the, we get up from the table I, i'm sort of i illustrate with thanksgiving dinner i can eat till i'm stuffed uh, there was a group of young men in a church we were in and they had a contest you weigh yourself before thanksgiving dinner you weigh yourself after thanksgiving dinner and whoever gained the most won i don't know what they won but anyway well, I'm that guy, I can be totally stuffed and get up, well, would you like some dessert? No, I, what is it? Yeah, I, I think I could put a little more in there. Well, that's that hungering and thirsting to me. That, that kind of illustrates it for me is that it, it, it's, it's enough, but it's never enough. Like, we're satisfied, but we want even more. And when, and when it comes to God, that's okay. When it comes to ice cream, it's not. But when it comes to God, it's okay to, to want more of him constantly and then once we have more of God we're learning we're hungry and thirsting after him we start becoming merciful because we see where God brought us from totally helpless to now being one of his that is wanting to know his will and do his will and we receive mercy when we're merciful and then blessed are the pure in heart and that's where we uh, were last week and that pure in heart means to be single focused. It's the very thing I've been talking about. We, we push everything out except the vision of God. And the psalmist said, let my eyes look right on. It says, I've trained my eyes to not look at the things that I shouldn't look at. And so uh, we, we become single hearted, single purpose, single minded. And when we do that, we shall see God, it says. And today we come to blessed are the peacemakers. For they, what's it called? It says, they will be called sons of God. Now, I'm going to explain that, but let's open in prayer. Father God, in Jesus' name, as we step into your throne room, Lord, um, we realize our great need. We, we never get away from being totally destitute without you, but you have filled our life with your good things. And that's why in James, you said every good and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness nor shifting shadow. And so you have given to us what we need, and they are good gifts, all of them. But Lord, we are always reminded that apart from you, we have nothing. But in you, all things are ours that you have promised. And so, uh, Lord, we hold on uh, tightly to your grace, but loosely to the things that, uh, that you've given us, uh, materially especially. But understanding that they are not given to us only to enjoy. They're given to us to give away to others. And just like the fish and the loaves, the more we give, the more we get. And so, Lord, may we constantly be in that flow of blessing because we're giving Jesus away to everybody we can. Help us, Lord, to be totally surrendered to your will. Uh, Lord, open my heart, open the hearts of these folks. I pray they would pray this, pray this prayer with me that you would just open our heart to see the wonderful things in your word and that seeing it, we will obey, that we will do what you call upon us to do. Help me today, Lord, because I know I'm not adequate for this, but Lord, you are more than adequate 
Uh, just as we were talking about the loaves and the fish in that story, the disciples were inadequate, but with you, their inadequacy became superabundance. And so, Lord, as we offer this small gift, this little lunch to you, I pray, God, you'd bless it, break it, and feed multitudes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is pretty interesting, uh, this peacemaker thing. I want you to notice it didn't say men of peace. Blessed are men who are at peace. It said blessed are people who make peace. Those are very different. Because we are to be at peace in God, right? Uh, in, in fact, that, that's, a, that's a necessity. But, but to be a peacemaker is going, is going to cost us something. How, how many times do you come to church and you're not at peace with God because you're not at peace with, with your fellow man? That there might be someone that uh, you're in, you're in a, a fight with or an argument with or whatever, and, and, and you have contributed to that because it takes two people to fight. Y'all know that, right? If you just refuse to fight, well, you, if you do that physically, you might get beat up, but it ain't going to be a fight. It's just going to be a beat down, right? Well, sometimes God calls us to just take the beat down. You say, oh, God wouldn't do that. He that would slap you on one side of your face, I just read this two days ago, turn your other cheek for him to slap that one too. If he wants to go a mile, go two miles. Just always give back more and, and more in a positive way than they expect. Well, you say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, exactly. It's God's sense. It's not human sense. It's not common sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. That, you know, there's a time to protect. There's a time to defend. But somebody just mad at me and wants to slap me. Well, that's on you, man. I mean, you don't make me look bad. Make you look bad. In fact, I think we saw that sometime this past year when some famous actor walked up and slapped the host. And he's been banned from making movies for a year. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of odd there, isn't it? Here's something about peacemaking. And that is, it's not a choice, it's a requirement. I, the title of the sermon is Peacemaking Made, Made Easy. That's a misnomer. It cannot be easy. It is not easy. It costs a lot to be a peacemaker. But peacemaking is not a choice. It is a requirement. I'm sorry, I need to just open something up here so that um, things will work better. But I, I want us to, to look at what it means to be a peacemaker. Now, who is the greatest peacemaker of all time? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Of course it is. In Isaiah 9, 6, it is said that he is the prince of peace. Um, in, in Luke 2 and uh, verse 14, uh, Jesus says this. Well, it didn't come through. Um, Jesus lets us know that, that he has come to bear peace. Let me, let me turn there real quickly. It's a few pages over if you've got your Bibles over. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And you can look with me. Jesus is the peacemaker. He's reading in the temple, I believe, or tabernacle. And in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, um, I'm sorry, not, what am I thinking? It's, it's Jesus' birth, and here's what the angels say. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He is the peacemaker. I, I want to make a big point of this as we go along, because... Uh, because I don't think we kind of realize what salvation really means, what God has done. I, I, 
I explain a lot, and I would think that we would catch on, but I need to remind myself a lot, so I assume you do too. But there's, a, there's an important verse, I think, in John 14 and verse 27. And it says this. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. We have a peace from God that is, that is not understood by this world and is, the world can't give it. Not as the world give, uh, gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus brings peace into our life. And it is part of who he is in our life. And God is the one who causes the peace to come into our life because Jesus made peace for us. I'll come back to that in a second. The method of peacemaking is, this is maybe simple, but it's four things that I have, four steps. The first is go to God in prayer. If you're in a, if you're in a situation, or it, it may not even involve you, but there may be two parties of whom you're responsible, and they're at war, and you might have to bring peace. Now, you don't want to get between two fighting people normally, right? Because if you get between two fighting people, you could get hurt, seriously hurt. That's, that is very, very possible, very, very likely. So you need to go before God in prayer and for another reason. Galatians says that when you see a man overtaken in fault, restore him, taking heed to yourself lest you too become a castaway. You go to help make peace with, between people or things and you're gonna, uh, you, you might get in trouble. You, you, you have to go knowing that God has sent you and being equipped by God. And then if it's a personal thing, someone has something against you, you've offended someone, then you go to that person, and that's Matthew 18, 15. If you know your brother has something against you, you go to him in person, and you work through that, and you come to be at peace. But you need to be honest with your own feelings, because I can tell you, you're always right, right? Isn't that what the Bible tells us in Isaiah? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, and, um, when we, we need to be honest. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So be aware, if you're just angry, if you're just motivated to grab somebody by the throat, you're not going to be able to make peace. You've got to desire peace with someone, and not just your friends. Anybody could do that. Your enemies. Before I, before I give you the last step, think about the context here of Matthew 5, what Jesus was saying. Because the Bible names a couple of those disciples as being zealots. Now, a zealot, think of uh, people in an oppressed country, and they want to kick out the invaders. They, I mean, they want to kill every one of them. They want to destroy them. And Jesus comes along and says, be a peacemaker. And, and we want to make it personal. This isn't about being personal. It's about being one who brings peace into a bad situation. And, and so when Jesus said this, this wasn't a nice platitude that you put on a plaque in your baby's room this is, this is warfare, spiritual warfare, and we conduct war by making peace. It's what God calls us to do. And the fourth step in peacemaking, go to God, uh, go to the person, and be honest about yourself, 
but keep this in mind, talk to them, not about them. If someone's offended you and you go tell your friend, man, I don't know what to do. This guy did all this to me. You know what you call that? Gossip. And boy, do we love to gossip. People will go anywhere but to the source that they need to go to. Absolutely will do that. And so that's the method. It's a simple method. That's why I say peacemaking made, made easy. Pray, go to God, say, Lord, there's a problem here. You know, it might be me. Sometimes when you pray to God and say, hey, God, what's going on here? He says, not me, it's you. You know, we, we, we tend to think that everything's God's fault. How many times have you talked to somebody and go, oh, I don't believe God's real. If God's real, why is there suffering in the world? Well, God didn't create the suffering. We did. Right? You said, well, God's powerful enough to stop it. Yes, he can make us robots and stop it. But instead, he became one of us and shows us his grace so that we can become involved in his kingdom and voluntarily, lovingly, because he drew us and loved us, want to be a part of that. You see, the church is called to be countercultural. We've got a, we live in a fighting culture, don't we? We take sides, right? We take sides politically. We take sides. Yesterday was college football day. Today is professional football day, by and large, for those who get way into it. And I guarantee I'm on one side or the other. I don't like to watch a game that I don't care who wins. To me, that's boring. I want to see my team win. And that doesn't always happen, does it? But we'll take sides. And to the extent, I, I think it was just last week somewhere, I read this story at some soccer match. A fight broke out. And then hundreds of people were killed, trampled to death, over kicking a ball a thousand times before you score once. On a 110-yard field? It's un-American, I'm telling you. <laughs> but the rest of the world loves soccer. And they want, they are so passionate, they will cause fights and murder for that. Well, the church is called to be countercultural. Where we are in love with God so much, we're in love with everyone else. Even those who we see as enemies. You see, the culture sees Christ when they see the church resolving conflicts how many times have you heard in your lifetime if you've been around church much and if you've never been around church well you won't understand what I'm about to say but there are churches that have split apart over the color of carpets over paint or wallpaper over this little thing or that little thing and it's crazy. We are called to be one. We are supposed to be united in the Lord and in spirit and in purpose and in faith. And the idea is that we're supposed to be telling the whole world about Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah, amen. And so why do we, why do we miss it so much? Well, maybe we're not consciously going through these beatitudes and letting this this progression that we see there happen in our life where every morning we wake up and say, Lord... It's a new day, and I can't, I can't get out of bed without you. I need your help today because I have nothing. I have no means of getting anything. And, Lord, I, I can't wait till you remake me so that I won't have to be this way, that, that it's not part of me. But 
Lord, show me your way. I want you. And we open our Bibles and we start reading his word and we start praying. And he starts feeding us and we want more and more and more. And we become a merciful people. We become pure in heart that we know that it is in that moment that we see the most clearly all day long. And we just want to stay there. We know we got to quit and go to work and go take care of things. But, but our hunger is we can't get, wait to get back to it. And as a result, and we get that purity of heart, we start becoming peacemakers. Because we're at peace, we can help others be at peace. I, I, I mentioned uh, uh, taking sides. Before I leave that, I, I just an illustration popped in my head. I thought about putting it at the beginning of the sermon, but I saved it for here. It's in Joshua 5. And Joshua, got to go, go take that city. How in the world are we going to take that city? The walls are so thick, you can run a couple, three chariots abreast around the top. Biggest walled city in that time. We can't knock it down. We can't lay siege to it. We, how are we going to do this? And so Joshua's praying about it. Don't we, don't we like to say that? Well, just pray about it. I don't think we actually pray about it most of the time. But let's just pray about it. So Joshua is praying about it. And he looks up, and there's this flaming bright guy with a sword out now we know now that was Jesus in a pre-incarnate form appearing to Joshua we know that by what that person said because what did Joshua say are you for us or for our enemies and what did Jesus say neither I am captain of God's armies it's Lord Sabaoth. It's got an O-T-H on it. It's not Sabbath. not Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabaoth, which is God's armies. And then the next thing he says, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. He was in the presence of God. Angels don't tell you to take off their sh- your shoes. Only God does that. And so there's Jesus with the word in his hand, the sword of God in his hand. And when he's asked, are you for us? Because we're the Jews. We're your people. We're the church. You've chosen us. You've saved us. Obviously, you're on our side. And he's going, no, I'm not. You're supposed to be on my side. But you see, when I think that everybody's a Christian ought to be in this political party or, ha- or be, uh, do this one thing or don't do this other thing, then anybody that's that way, oh, well, you're wrong. And now we're on opposite sides. And we, I thought we were supposed to both be on the, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's where I thought we were supposed to live, right? So that's the church. The Bible says in Ephesians of making, taking all people of all nations and making them one per people in the church. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about where I was born. It's not about where I live. It's about am I a kingdom dweller? And if I am, who can I bring into the kingdom? And using that loosely, who can brought, God use me to bring into the kingdom by his grace? So that we're all one people. We are one. And the church ought to be a place of peace. And then he says, because if you're a peacemaker, you are son of God. And a lot of our modern versions, and you may have one different than mine. Mine still says sons. And a lot of modern ones say children of God. And I thought, well, that's reasonable. I mean, that's the point, right? Guess what? It's not. It's not that women are excluded. Let me hurry to say that. But I looked it up, and it is the Greek word for son, not child. And here's why Jesus might would say that. Read this 
uh, and, and some people are smarter than me. It is because the son carries the characteristics of the father. Adam sinned, and his sons were sinners because Adam sinned. And so when he says that, he's not saying women are excluded. He's saying it's, it's, it's almost metaphorical because we become the children of God, but we become sons of God, and that is we are to inherit his character, his way of doing things, the, 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 the personality he has. We, a son inherits their traits from their father. We were with my son last night. His wife's birthday was yesterday. And we, we went and uh, went out to eat with him. And, and he was explaining something. And I never said it to him. But he was talking about. He, he just knew something we didn't know he knew anything about. And he was explaining it to us. And Janice said well. Sounds like you could get a job doing that. You know so much. He goes well I was thinking about it. So I know so much. Well friend if I get interested in something. I mean, my wife would go, do you have to look that up now? Yes, I do. I got to find out. We got to know. I just got to find out everything I can. If I got to have a surgical procedure, I start studying. I go in and start asking the doctor. Hey, where are you going to cut me exactly? How, are you going to use that scope? How's that thing work? I want to know. Well, my son inherited that from me, it seems. And so if he gets interested in something, Katie barred the door. It was, trouble was trying. No, I won't say that. I was going to make a joke, but he's actually a good student. I was going to say, I wish he'd have gotten interested in math and English and all the things in school, but He's actually, it was a very good student. But, but, but God, Jesus is using this term not to exclude women, but to remind us that we are to inherit the traits of God himself. And this is where I want to kind of explain to you what salvation really means. Because we were the enemies of God. I was explaining this just uh, the other day to somebody. I think, Janice, you were there. I, don't, I can't remember. But, no, I don't think you were. Anyway, if... Uh, Leroy's here on the front. I'm going to just pick on Leroy. I'm just going to use his name. Leroy, you, you, you punched me. You just, out of the blue one day, you went, I just don't like the way you look, and you knocked me down. Now, let me ask you, who is offended? Me or him? Me. <laughs> Stuart's offended because I got punched. When Adam sinned, he punched God in the face. He's the offended party. He has that right of revenge if he punched me in the world system, God acknowledges this, world, this is how the world works. I got a right to revenge. I can pop him back. But God, instead of popping us back and destroying us, put on human flesh and lived a sinless life and took your guilt and my guilt, your sin and my sin, and took it all on himself and took it to the cross. He made peace, not because we were in rebellion, but because God was angry with us. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says in Isaiah, it, it pleased him, the Father, to bruise the Son for our sins. It's in Isaiah 51. You can look it up. That's not a quote, but that idea is in there. And God's frown is now turned into a smile because of the blood of Christ on the cross. He's the ultimate peacemaker because he is the only creature in all of, each, of all the universe. Whatever is out there, he's the only one who has the right to revenge. And instead of exercising his right to revenge on those who offended him, he did it on himself so that you could be a child of God. 
And if that's true, then you got to be a peacemaker. Jesus didn't say love your friends. He said love your enemies. He assumed you're going to love your friends. He said even the world can love their friends. You're supposed to love your enemies. And if you love your enemies, you want them to know Christ. The primary goal of the Christian peacemaker is to bring people who are in conflict to the Savior. Barnabas was a perfect example of that. I don't have time to go into it all, but he did it between an individual and a group. He's the one that got him to accept Paul. Between two races of people in Acts 11, we see that they're, they're preaching and, 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 well, he went to, Barnabas went to a place and people that weren't Jews were being saved. And, and so he sent for Paul and Paul comes in there and they start working with these two different races of people. Between two churches, Acts 15. Acts 15 is the first council of churches. And why did they meet together? They met together because it was a conflict going on. And Paul and Barnabas, and the Bible says they went and Barnabas and Paul spoke. And they listened to Barnabas. It even says it. And then the biggie that Barnabas did. So they, on their first missions trip, they took John Mark, probably a cousin they think, to, to Barnabas. And John Mark was young. And boy, they started fighting demons. And he didn't like it. And he went home. And so, after that council, Barnabas, Paul says, hey, Barnabas, come on, man, let's go back and visit all those churches that we planned and strengthen them. And Barnabas said, okay, John, come on, come on, John, Mark. And Paul said, oh, whoa, 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 we ain't taking that boy. Why not say he abandoned us? He left us. When the, when the tough got going, the weak got going. But he left. Barnabas said, no, come on, we, he'll be all right. And they said, well, let's not fight about it. They made peace. Paul said, I'll pick somebody, you take John Mark, you go this way, I'll go that way, we'll meet in the middle. He said, okay, that's a good deal. Barnabas brokered that so that at the end of Paul's life, as he's about to die, he says, bring John Mark with you. For he's very valuable to me in the ministry. Why? Because of Barnabas. (laughs) No Barnabas, no Paul. So are you willing to be a peacemaker? Not, not just for the lost, but how about to your fellow man or your fellow Christians, those who wound you? Because you can have no peace in this world until you have peace with God. And by, by the way, I don't think I said it, but Romans 5.1 says that therefore we have peace with God. We, we are set free. The corresponding fruit is faithfulness. And that is a, a trust, a, a persuasion, a moral conviction of the truthfulness of God and relying upon Christ no matter what. It's to continue to do what's right when everybody around you is doing wrong. The church has never had a greater opportunity in North America, maybe. I, I don't say that because I haven't been here all, you know, 200 or 500 years of, of white guys living here. But, but the, the political animal we know is America and this nation, this landmass, the church here has never had, loosely said, a better opportunity to shine the light of the gospel because it's getting dark. It's getting darker and darker and darker. And our job is not to curse the darkness. Our job is to light the candle. If you'll pardon me using a phrase it's probably common, but I heard it in a movie that I won't recommend you go see, the original Top Gun. It's time to kick the tires and light the fires. In other words, let's get moving. Let's fire this puppy up. It's dark here. 
it's time for us to check the tires. Yep, here we go. Now let's light the fire. Let's go be a candle in the darkness. That's what we are called to do because God is faithful. First John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. God is faithful to us. So you can't share Christ with others if you don't have peace with yourself, with God, and with other people. What would Calvary look like if we were all going to God and praying for each other? And when we took an offense, and most times we take an offense, we're mistaken. I've learned we don't hear it well. We didn't understand it well. The person was in a bad mood that day and really didn't mean it, even though they said it. We can give them grace because I think you've probably said things you didn't mean to in the heat. So what would it look like if we actually truly said I want to be at peace. So what can you do? Just what I told you. Go before God in prayer. Don't wait on other people to come to you. Go to them. Be honest about your feelings. Are you just acting out of anger? And talk to people, not about people. It would save a lot of hurt. That, that last point I think is very important. In Proverbs and chapter 15, and I won't read the whole proverb, but it says, six things the Lord hates, and the seventh is an abomination to him. The seventh thing is he that sows discord among brothers. God says that when you're not a peacemaker, that's an abomination. When you create conflict, that's an abomination. And so we have to be peacemakers. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that you are the example. You are the great peacemaker. That you turned God's wrath into love for us. The wrath we deserved, you took on yourself. You, you carried it on yourself. And so, Lord, I, I just ask you in, in prayer, Lord, that you would help us to realize if we, if we have been building and growing in these Beatitudes as we've gone through them, we've come to a point where it's, it's outside of us now. All this before now was something inside of us. It, it had a little glimpse out here and there, but now it is all outside of us. It's not whether we're at peace, even though we ought to be, but, but that we ought to help others be at peace. We're to be a peacemaker. And God, we don't, we, we don't even know how to do that. We, we're not sure sometimes what, what that means. It means to bring people to know you and to fellowship with people and to love them, to accept them the way you accepted them as they are. And to help them become more in Christ because you're helping us become more in Christ. It, it, it's simple to say, Lord, but we sure struggle to do it. And so, please help us.